And I'm excited that we took the opportunity this morning to sing of the faithfulness of God because that is what this entire passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at in Mark is about. The goodness of God, the faithfulness of God as we are continuing on in our sermon series that we started several weeks ago through the Gospel of Mark that we've titled Astonished and Amazed. On April 15th of 1912, the unthinkable happened. The world had watched in wonder as one of the the greatest feats of modern engineering was put together and set sail as the ship Titanic left on its maiden voyage. People were in awe of this ship. It was, as I said, a masterpiece of human ingenuity, so much so that the captain himself was willing to declare even God himself can't sink this ship. It's four days later that that massive feat of human ingenuity hit an iceberg, And over 2,000 men, women, and children died in the icy waters of the northern Atlantic Ocean. We love to live our lives as though we are invincible. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought until God chooses to remind us of just how vulnerable and ultimately insignificant we are. It might be through an earthquake. A spark that sets a wildfire that destroys thousands of acres. It might be even a microscopic organism that has the ability to stop the world's economy in its track. They're all a constant reminder that we're not really as powerful as we actually think that we are. Despite our arrogance and our pride and our hubris, we are powerless But nevertheless, as powerless as we actually are, there is hope, Scripture tells us, because the one who holds all the power in the universe is one that we can know, one that loves us, one that we can exist in a perfect relationship with. And that is what Mark presents to us in this chapter, Mark chapter 5 and the end of chapter 4. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35, and we will read all the way through the end of chapter 5 today. I know that that's a long passage of Scripture, but these words are infinitely more important than anything that I will say when it's done. So here we go. Mark writes, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. 
For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she had said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only keep on believing. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Pray with me. Father, as we now come before your word, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guard this time, that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to respond to the truth of your word, that we would come to know you 
Lord Jesus as the almighty, powerful God who entered into our world, who clothed Yourself with humanity, who had power over everything in the universe, even death itself, and yet You chose to take death upon Yourself that we might live. So give us your grace and your mercy in this time. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. As we pick up here in verse 34 or 35 from where we left off last week, last week we were introduced to Jesus' parabolic ministry. And we shared last week that the parabolic ministry of Jesus Christ was not limited just to the stories that Jesus chose to tell. But instead, his parabolic ministry also overflowed into the things that he did. And so Jesus is continuing on and Mark is continuing to reveal to us this parabolic ministry of Jesus Christ through these four miracles that take place at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5. The purpose of parables is to unveil some spiritual reality. It unveils a truth about God, about the kingdom of God, about the identity of Jesus Christ, while simultaneously revealing the hearts of men by their response to Jesus and to his stories. And in this particular passage of Scripture, there's one question that is asked early on by the apostles that is the key to understanding everything else that takes place in these verses. They ask this question, who is this man? And so the question that dominates this passage is, who is this one who wields such power? Who is it that has the power over creation? Jesus has been teaching all day long and he's exhausted And he's still standing in that boat out on the Sea of Galilee as he's been teaching the crowd that's on the shore. And Mark tells us that in that moment, he he tells his disciples, let's go across to the other side. And so they set sail. They don't even take the time to get out of the boat and make any preparations from right there, just as he was, Mark tells us. They set across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. As they're sailing, a storm suddenly descends upon the Sea of Galilee. And it's a storm unlike any other storm. Mark says that it is a great storm. And we know that it must be a great storm because the apostles start freaking out. These aren't just, you know, novel nautical men. These are seasoned fishermen who have spent their lives on this lake. Imagine, if you will, that you're on on an airplane flight, right? And you're starting to feel a little bit of turbulence. And you're okay for a little bit because you're looking up and you're watching the stewardess. Because you know that as long as the stewardess is up and moving around and doing everything, that you're okay. But imagine all of a sudden that that, that, that turbulence gets bad enough that you see the stewardess starting to cry. That's the point when you tuck your, ha- tail, your head between your legs and kiss your tail goodbye. Right? Because if the stewardess is panicking, you know it's a big deal. And these guys are seasoned fishermen and they are panicking. They are convinced that they are going to die. And yet, in spite of it all, there sits Jesus, actually there lays Jesus, in the back of the boat, the perfect picture of calm, as he is able to sleep in the midst of this storm. And the fact reveals two things. One, it reveals Jesus' humanity because he's clearly exhausted. And we'll go on to hear more about Jesus and his disciples and their exhaustion and how they're not able to find any rest. But here Jesus has found a moment of peace, a moment of rest. But it also reveals to us his absolute trust and faith in the will of his Father. 
But the disciples don't have that same faith. And so in their freaking out and in their panic, they run to Jesus Christ and they wake him up. And in their fear, they challenge him as they question his love for them. And Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He goes from sleeping one minute to standing up and looking out over the sea and he tells them, hush and be still. Exactly like a dad who walks into a room and the kids are fighting and says, everybody be quiet and sit down. And immediately everybody does what they're told, hopefully. Not in my house. If you figure that one out, please come and talk to me. Give me a little bit of some help because I haven't figured that one out. But Jesus gets up and just like a father would rebuke a child, he rebukes the wind. And he rebukes the waves. And in an instant, the wind is gone and the sea is still. Now, it might be a coincidence if Jesus tells the wind to stop and the wind stops blowing. But if you've been around a lake or you've been on the ocean and there's a storm that's stirred up, the water continues to wave over and over. The billows continue to roll for hours on end. But in this moment, all of creation hears the voice of Jesus Christ and does exactly what it's told right away. The wind stops and the waves are still. And the Sea of Galilee becomes as still as glass. And the disciples are still just as terrified. The only problem is their fear has shifted from outside the boat to inside the boat. Because outside the boat was a storm that had the ability to take their lives. And inside the boat is the one that has, that, has the ability to tell that storm to be quiet. And they respond to him in almost terror as they ask this question, Who then is this? That even the winds and the seas obey him. Who has, creation, who has power over creation? Who has power over demons? As soon as they get to the other side, when they land on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, they jump out of the frying pan and into the fire. Because a different storm confronts them at this moment. And it's not a natural storm. It's a supernatural storm. Because this man comes running to them. Attempt just a moment to imagine this man in your mind. He is dirty. He's been living in the caves where they bury their dead. He's most likely naked. No one likes him. No one can even stand to be around him. No one can contain him. He is so wild and crazy that he probably hasn't eaten in weeks. And so he is malnourished. He is dirty. He is scrawny. He is covered in scars. Some that he's inflicted upon himself and some that have been inflicted upon him as his neighbors and his friends attempted to contain him by chaining him inside of these caves. And against all odds, he has had the physical ability to literally break these chains. So imagine what that has done to his body. And we see in that that no one had the ability to bind this man. All of the strength and ingenuity of humanity proved powerless to contain this man who was possessed by a host of demons. And just as the apostles proved powerless in the face of the storm, so the efforts of this society had proven pointless in the presence of these demons. We can't overpower the supernatural. But neither can we ignore it. We've grown to the point in Western society when we believe that we've matured beyond the belief in the supernatural and the superstitions of the generations that have gone on before us. But that is an arrogant position to take. We have to acknowledge that if God is real, Satan must be as well. 
If the angels are real, the demons must be real as well. And this man possessed by demons comes running to Jesus and accosts him in this moment. And he challenges them. And he even attempts to command Jesus to do something in the name of God. But Jesus doesn't bat an eye. He's not phased in the slightest. Instead, he responds with a command of his own and he demands these demons leave. He asks their name and we realize it's not just one demon, it is thousands. We don't know how many thousands there were inside of this man, but there were thousands of demons living inside of this man and controlling him. And yet these demons prove themselves completely, completely weak and powerless in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus permits them to go and they enter this herd of of 2,000 pigs and the 2,000 pigs then rush off of the cliffs and they're immediately destroyed by this demonic force. And the people run and scatter and they tell. And they arrive to a greater miracle than any one of them could have ever possibly imagined. They would have been content if this man was just under control. If you just keep him contained, we're fine. Just keep him over here, get him a little bit okay, just get him well enough to maybe interact within society, and we're good with that. But instead what they find is him seated, seated, clothed, and in his right mind. More than they ever could have hoped or possibly imagined. They knew what was inside of this man, and in that moment they realized that something more powerful than these thousands of demons had shown up on their shores, and again they were terrified. But unlike the disciples who drew nearer to Jesus Christ in the midst of their fear, these who are Gentiles and are now faced with a power that is more powerful than thousands of demons, ask him, beg him, please, you got to go. You can't stay here. You have to leave. And Jesus willingly, compassionately, condescends and goes. But there's one man whose life has been radically transformed by Jesus Christ, who can't go, but runs to Jesus and falls on his face a second time and begs Jesus Christ, please just let me be with you. Can I go with you? And Jesus says, no. You have a story to tell, so you're to go and tell it. Tell it to your friends and tell it to your families. Tell them what God in his mercy has done for you. Because Jesus can't stay. They don't want him to stay. But this man can stay in his place. This man can speak. This man can share. This man can testify and witness to what Christ had done for him. And so he goes. And we'll see in a few weeks the fruit of his ministry there in the ten cities of Greece. And Jesus gets in the boat and he goes on. He goes back across the sea to where he came from. And so we ask this question, who is it that has power over creation? Who is it that has power over demons? Who is it now we see that has power over life and death itself? As Jesus lands back in Capernaum, he is met again with another storm. But this storm is a storm of people. As they're so excited that he has returned, and they rush to Jesus Christ there on the the shore. And among this crowd is an official named Jairus. Jairus was not a, a Pharisee or a religious leader necessarily. He was something more along the lines of a deacon. His responsibility was to organize the services at the synagogue. Nevertheless, he would have been someone who was prominent. He would have been someone who was well-known and respected. He would have been someone who was wealthy. And he would have known all of these religious leaders that are upset with Jesus and have determined that Jesus has to die. But Jairus is desperate. 
because his 12-year-old daughter is not just sick enough to die. Hospice has already gone home. They're just waiting for the moment to come. And he falls on his face in front of Jesus. He comes and he implores him. He begs him, please, would you come with me? Please, if you come and you lay hands on her, she will be healed. This one who was rubbing shoulders with the very people who were ready to kill Jesus Christ now comes to him in desperation and in faith, convinced that if Jesus comes, Jesus can do the impossible. Jesus can save his daughter. And Jesus has compassion on him. And agrees to follow him to his daughter's bedside. And the crowd is thronging him. It's literally, they're shoulder to shoulder with him. They're reaching and they're vying for his attention. They're screaming his name. And you can almost imagine the disciples are crowd control. Weaving their way through like, like secret service agents as the president is coming through. Or security guards as Bono or some other musical icon is walking through the crowds. And they're pushing people back and making a way. And in the midst of that with all of those hands reaching out and all of those voices crying out, Jesus is arrested by the slightest touch. A touch that doesn't even make contact with his body, but just grasps or, or, or flicks the hem of his robe behind him. It was a woman desperate for healing. Women in this day and age were not allowed to speak to men, especially a rabbi in public. But beyond that, this particular woman, beyond being a woman in a male-dominated culture, this woman was a woman with a serious medical condition. She had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. She lost her life savings to doctors who proved themselves incapable of curing her condition. But beyond not curing her condition, they actually made it worse. Year upon year. And even though they were incapable of fully healing her or curing her condition, they proved themselves completely capable and willing to take all of her money. And her bleeding position, or condition came with more than just that physical toll. It would have rendered her ceremonially unclean in Jewish society, which means that she was not allowed to come in contact not only with a man, but with anyone or anything. Because if she touched anything, whatever she touched would immediately become unclean. And so she was as unclean and isolated in her society as a leper. And had been for 12 years. She had no money. She had no family. She had no nothing but a hope. A superstitious hope. that If she could just touch the garment of a holy man, she would be made well. And so in her desperation, she's crept through the crowd touching who knows how many people, trying her best to remain secret, slinking her way to Jesus, and she's just able to touch the hem of his garment, and immediately Jesus knows that something has happened. He feels the power go out from him, and he looks. While everyone else is vying for his attention, this woman has acted in secret, and what God sees in secret we know from Scripture, he is faithful to bring to light. And her faith was able to serve as an example to those that were around her, even to Jairus in this moment. Though many had touched Jesus Christ, she was the only one who received healing. And even greater than that, this one who was a social outcast and unwanted and unloved now receives the name daughter from Jesus himself. 
As he stops what he's doing and he has an, a, a lengthy conversation with this woman that nobody had looked at or wanted anything to do with for 12 years. While that's going on though, you can almost sense Jairus over there bouncing back and forth because his daughter's dying. This woman, she's had this bleeding condition for 12 years. She can wait till tomorrow, maybe. Or maybe at least wait for a little bit. My daughter is about to die. You've got to come now. And Jesus stops to have an elongated conversation while this woman tells him the whole truth. And the servant arrives and says, hey, we don't need to bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. Can you imagine the grief and the despair and the anger that would have filled Jairus' heart at this particular moment, hearing this news, knowing that they had been delayed, if they just could have gotten there a little bit sooner, maybe his daughter would be alive. Nevertheless, Jesus looks at him and speaks of courage and of faith. Because Jairus had just seen the power that faith has, the power displayed in the healing of this woman's actions and in her heart. And so he calls on Jairus to keep on believing. You believed in me enough to think that I could heal your daughter. Don't lose that now. Continue to believe. Will you believe that I have the ability to do even more? And so they get to the home. And they meet the grieving crowd, the professional grievers who are there to weep and wail. And Jesus puts them all out of the house. And in that moment, he does the unthinkable. They knew that she was dead. Jesus knew that she was dead. And he walks up to this little dead girl. And he does what no Jewish man or Jewish person would have done. He touches the dead body. Takes her by the hand and whispers, Talitha Kumi. The Bible translates that as little girl I say to you, arise. But that word, Talitha, would have been the same word used for a little lamb. This isn't just a girl, a term for a little girl. This would have been the term that a father or a mother would have whispered over their daughter, sweetheart, time to get up. And as Timothy Keller points out, in this particular moment, Jesus proves that in his presence, death has no more power than a cat now. And this little girl sits up. And she begins to walk around, and he says, hey, you guys need to know that this isn't a spirit, this isn't a zombie, give her something to eat. And they marvel, and they're amazed. And the five witnesses, as they're marveling, and as they're amazed at what Jesus Christ has done, are in that instant sworn to secrecy. Nevertheless, they're left asking that question, who is this? Who is it that has power over creation and demons and life and death itself? Who is this Jesus? All four of these miracle stories give us testimony that Jesus is the mighty God incarnate. The God of all gods who has come in the flesh. Jesus can do what no man can do. The apostles couldn't save themselves in the storm. The garrisons couldn't contain the demoniac. The doctors could not heal the woman or save the little girl. Yet what man couldn't do, Jesus Christ proves capable of doing. And capable of not only doing, but filling full and going above and beyond Psalm 89.9, just thinking about the storm, the Psalm 89 verse 9 says that God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. In this passage of Scripture, one of the most important sections, the most important set of verses is verse 19 and 20 of Mark chapter 5. When Jesus commands the man who has been healed of all of these demons, go and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you and the mercy that he has shown you. 
Go tell them what God has done. What does he do? He goes and declares what Jesus had done. Was he disobedient? No. He got it. Go and tell what, to go and tell what God has done is to go and tell what Jesus has done. To tell what Jesus has done is to declare what God has done because Jesus is God. That's the purpose of this entire section of parabolic miracles is to roll back the veil so that we might see the true identity of Jesus Christ as the mighty God who has come in the flesh. And since Jesus Christ is that mighty God who has come in the flesh, as we look in this passage of Scripture, very briefly, there are certain things that we need to take away from this. The very first thing is that since Jesus is the mighty God incarnate, we must trust him in absolutely everything. In each and every one of these circumstances, we see that the circumstances are hopeless. It is a storm unlike any that they have ever faced that is out there on the boat. They are stranded and there is nothing that they can do. Here is a man who is... Who is indwelled by thousands of demons, possessed by thousands of demons. Here is a woman that no doctor has been able to heal for 10 years. Here's a little girl that's dead. How much more hopeless can it be than any of those situations? But as David Garland points out, Jesus, we learn in these passages of Scripture that Jesus is equal to any threat that may shatter human life. What is it that you're afraid of? Are you afraid of tornadoes or earthquakes or hurricanes or wildfire? Are you afraid of supernatural forces that are beyond your control, whether it's ghosts or goblins or demons, or maybe it's just something as simple as karma or luck or fate? Are you afraid of catching some debilitating disease that is going to leave you completely cut off from your family and your friends and from society? Or are you afraid of death itself? Desperation is often the key that unlocks our faith. And it's only when we're faced with a situation that we perceive as hopeless that we must reach beyond ourselves to another source of hope, that we must exercise our faith in something else, in someone else, as we cry out for help. And that is exactly what we see in this passage of Scripture as Jesus repeatedly pits fear against faith. As he asks the disciples on the boat, where is your faith? As he asks the formerly possessed man to go to not get to be with Jesus, but to go for Jesus into the world. He tells the woman, your faith has made you well, despite the fact that she is afraid and terrified that he has spot, shined the spotlight on her. And he tells Jairus, don't be afraid, but keep on believing. Where is your focus? Is it on what makes you afraid? Because there are plenty of reasons in this passage of Scripture that can leave us doubting and fearful. Why would he let the disciples suffer while he sleeps? Why let them get to that place of panic in the first place? Why doesn't he allow, why doesn't he allow this demoniac, this demon-possessed man that he's healed stay with him? Why does he in, impose the financial loss of thousands of pigs upon the community of Gerasene? Why does he make the woman's actions public when she so desperately wants to keep it private? Why didn't he heal her financial situation instead of just her physical? Why did he tarry and make Jairus wait and let the little girl die in the first place? All of those questions can lead us to fear and doubt. And that was the source of the fear in each of these stories. But Jesus calls us away from fear and into faith. As he calls us to trust in him because he's trustworthy. And he proves it again and again throughout these stories. 
again and again as he steps in at just the right moment in God's time. We have to remember and humble ourselves before him and surrender our expectation and demand that we get all of the answers. But we must humble ourselves before, before Jesus Christ. We must humble ourselves before God and declare that he is God and we are not, and we are not entitled to anything. We must trust him, no matter the circumstances. When Mark wrote this gospel, he was writing to a church that was in the middle of the worst persecution of Christians in history. As Nero was literally taking Christians and setting them on fire and using them as candles for his garden parties, Mark writes this letter. Is there anyone who needs a reassurance that no matter the storm, no matter how hopeless the circumstance might seem, God is bigger and more powerful than whatever it is that is arrayed against us, than a group of Christians who are facing death every single day of their lives just for being Christians. They needed this word of encouragement. They needed this reminder. And so do you and so do I. We have to strive to remember in our times of suffering that God is worthy of our trust. And since Jesus Christ is the mighty God come in power and incarnated among us, we have to trust in Him. But not only must we trust in Him, we have to love as He loved. Throughout this passage of Scripture, we see Jesus loving perfectly. Some have balked, as I said, at Jesus allowing the destruction of thousands of pigs, potentially leaving families bankrupt. How is that loving and how is that kind? To leave a, a village in that type of a circumstance. When we're consumed with the pigs, we're blind to the man. And as one commentator pointed out, what we see here is that Jesus shows that his priority is people and not property. That this man is infinitely more valuable than thousands of pigs on a hillside because this man is imprinted with the image of God. And every human life is infinitely valuable because God is infinitely valuable and his, imprint is, his image is imprinted on us. And so Jesus Christ values this man's life. What do we value? Do we value the status of our 401k more than the people that are surrounding us and suffering in our society? Are we more concerned for pretty buildings than we are the people who fill them? Are we more concerned with our status and our reputation than we are with the people in need around us? Mark infuses the two stories of the woman with the bleeding condition and Jairus. Actually, God does it in his timing and in his as, as he is ordained. He infuses their stories together because we have to see them together to understand it. Here is a woman in a male-dominated world. She, he was, Jairus was a man, she was a woman. He was rich and powerful while she was poor and a social and spiritual outcast. He was strong, and he was there to advocate for his daughter while she was weak, most likely anemic and half-starved, with no one left to advocate for her. He was respected and sought after, but she hadn't felt the touch of another human being that wasn't the poking and prodding of an inept doctor for more than 12 years. Jairus' daughter was dying. She had a chronic condition. According to almost every single standard of that day and our day, Jairus' situation is the one that should have and would have gotten the attention, except it's not just anybody, it's Jesus. 
And he takes this powerful and prominent man, wealthy and strong, and says, hey, I need you to hang on just a second. And he turns to this woman that society had written off and wanted nothing to do with because she was tainted and she was dirty. And he makes everybody pay her attention. Because he sees the worth where everyone else deemed her worthless. And he loved her well. We're to love like Jesus loved. He wasn't concerned with catching any type of sin disease. He let her touch him. He touched a dead body. He put aside the religious taboos of his day and his age, his reputation, that he might serve and save the lost. Where's our faith in the power of the Spirit inside of us to manifest the presence of Christ into the lives of those who are most in need in the world? Where is our faith to sit down with someone that society said, you need to leave that person alone. You need to stay away from that person. You need to stay away from that side of town. You don't need to go into that restaurant or bar or facility. We value our reputation more than we do the eternal salvation of a person. Last off, we need to tell of his mercy. Jesus commanded the five to keep quiet, but he commanded the one to go and tell. And we can ask all day long, why did they have to stay quiet? And there are answers to that question, but that's not the point. The point is to ask yourself, which one are you? What has Jesus Christ told you to do? Has Jesus Christ commissioned you to be silent, or has Jesus Christ commissioned you to go and tell? And the answer to that from Scripture is very clear. He has commissioned every single child of God to go and tell. He has sent us out to testify of his love, how he rescued us from the clutches of Satan, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of marvelous light. He's called us to testify that he took our sin and our spiritual uncleanness upon himself on the cross by taking our place so that we might be forgiven, that we might be made whole. And he sent us into the world to proclaim that he has won the victory over sin and death because he was raised from the dead and he now holds the keys to everlasting life. You're a child of God. You have no excuse to be silent. But you are commissioned to go. And if you don't, you are disobedient. No matter the excuse. We are each and every one commissioned to go as witnesses and to tell the world what God has done and what Jesus has done To no longer be afraid, but to believe and invite people to find the peace that we have in Jesus Christ. That's what this passage of Scripture is about. It asks, who is this man? And Mark doesn't tell us so much as he shows us through what Jesus Christ has done, that he is the mighty God who has come to dwell among us to die for humanity that we might receive his grace and his mercy. And as we see in this passage of Scripture, there are two possible responses both rooted in fear. One is to come in awe of Jesus Christ and draw nearer to him, no matter our circumstance. To trust in what he has to say for us and has spoken over us or be distracted by the world and the problems and the circumstances around us. And when that happens, our response won't be to draw nearer to Jesus, but it will be to run away and to drive him away. Let me ask you, in closing, where is your faith this morning? 
It's in something. We are creatures of faith. Your faith and your trust is in something this morning. Is it in Jesus? Is it in Jesus? If not, then please run to him this morning as the object of faith that is stronger than anything and everything in this world, who is more powerful than any force that could come against you. Trust in Jesus today. Believe in him because he alone has the power to equal any threat that could shatter your life and overcome it. As your faith shifted, maybe your faith was in Jesus at one point in time, but now your faith has shifted to your knowledge and understanding of Scripture, to your own personal morality, to something other than Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Are you doubting God's goodness and care in your life because you're focusing on unanswered questions? If so, then I would call you and cry out for you and plead with you, come back to Jesus today. Because nothing else, nothing else is as powerful as him. Would you take a minute, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And would you pray? And ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in how it is that you need to respond. Knowing that Jesus Christ is the Almighty God come in the flesh to save you from your sins. Knowing that the one who has the power of life and death in his hands chose to die so that you might live. How do you need to respond? Now and throughout the week. Take a moment and pray and ask the Spirit to reveal to you how it is that you need to respond and I'll close this in a moment.